Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. So much for what passes for history today is only one-dimensional. We see the events, the names, the places, the timeline, and the heroes and villains. But there is often another dimension, not so much a secret history, but almost like the moon, it has a dark side hidden from us. It's there, but we just don't see it, and therefore we don't appreciate it and its broader impact. So it is with Silicon Valley. Literally millions of words have been written about it. In fact, I suspect that with the exception of politics in Washington, no place gets more coverage and attention than technology and Silicon Valley. No accident, given their long symbiotic relationship. You would think that by now then, we know it all. But we don't. It's why people still write books and surprise us about our origin story as a nation and about our wars, and why, particularly at this time, when tech is under such scrutiny, we should understand everything we can about its history. That's what my guest, Professor Margaret O'Meara, does in her new book, The Code. Margaret O'Mara is a professor of history at the University of Washington. She writes and teaches about the history of U.S. politics and the growth of the high-tech economy. Prior to her academic career, she worked in the Clinton White House and served as a contributing researcher at Brookings. It is my pleasure to welcome Margaret O'Mara here to talk about The Code, Silicon Valley, and the remaking of America. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's really delightful to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. When we look at Silicon Valley, it is almost as much a state of mind as it is a place. Talk a little about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Silicon Valley used to be just a, a place in Northern California, and now it's a global network. It's a sensibility. It's a political hack. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's and so I set out to understand how Silicon Valley came to be, what what its magic formula was why so many places around the world have tried to become silicon somethings and haven't quite replicated its magic, um, how much it is a California story and a Northern California story, and how much is it, it's an American story. And the way that you do that is you, as you say, you, you, you look at the history, you go back to the beginning, and you show what is seen and also what is hidden. And you sh and I, what in this book, I tried to both talk about the big names and the, that we know that are familiar to give a fresh take on those those people and help uh, help everyone understand those people and companies better, but also to talk about the hidden figures, the hidden phenomena, the intersections between politics and finance and old economy and new economy, and how all of those things made the tech revolution in the valley possible. And one of the things that happened, it seems, from those forces that came together, that perfect storm, the proverbial secret sauce, is it created a kind of culture of Silicon Valley, which is very much a part of this story. You know, we talk about culture and companies, and, you know, the famed management consultant Peter Drucker once said that uh, culture eats strategy for lunch, that, that the Valley itself developed its own culture. It did. It's a really distinctive culture that grows, it has its roots in the 50s and the 60s in this group of um, almost mostly men, <laughs> um, many of whom are transplants from somewhere else, engineers, uh, uh, MBAs who come out to the valley and kind of reinvent themselves and create an entirely new community. I I refer to it as a gal entrepreneurial Galapagos. It's, you know, we think about the Galapagos Islands as a place that developed distinctive 
species because of their isolation. And I think that's a really useful way to understand and think about early Silicon Valley and why, and it's not just early Silicon Valley that continues this entrepreneurial Galapagos. It continues today. Think about high-tech venture capital as a very distinctive service industry and investment industry that isn't just giving money, but also mentorship and expertise. You know, someone, people who have big exits in one generation of tech, say in in semiconductors, chip making, and they in turn go and fund and mentor the next generation of microcomputer, of personal computer makers. And those folks in turn mentor the people who are coming, uh, who are building these web companies, these dot-com companies in the 1990s, and on and on. So it's, a, it's this, this flywheel that is multi-generational. It's a really important way to understand how the Valley works and why it has been so good at generating one generation of companies after another. It keeps on going, which is quite remarkable. One of the great mythologies of the Valley, though, and you touched on it a moment ago, is this sense of entrepreneurialism in the extreme, as if everybody was able to create their companies completely on their own. And everybody's origin story is very egocentric in that regard, when in fact the reality is completely different in terms of, of A, the cross-pollinization in the valley, but also the important role that government played as, as the original venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> would, would you believe it? Yeah. As I write about in the book, the, the federal government does kind of becomes the de facto first venture capitalist of Silicon Valley. Because look, what the, what, what the Valley is building, the small electronics, the advanced electronics, radar, microwave, semi, semi, silicon semiconductors in the 50s and 60s, there's the, the the big the customer for all of those products and the and the research patron for all of the 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 work that's going into developing these projects is the federal government because what the U.S. government what happens you know what really sets this thing off is in the late 1940s and the early 1950s the U.S. government does something that it has never done before, which is it goes gets into funding science and technology in a very big way. And it was a choice made in a Cold War context because of the uh, technological competition with the Soviet Union. It was um, fueled by both the nuclear program and by the space race, which was very much part of that. You know, we need to think about the Apollo program as, mm-hmm. as much part of the Cold War as it was of anything else. You know, it was about how can the U.S. show that it is the, the scientific superpower of the, of, of the globe and, and beat the Russians to the moon. And all of that creates this incredible, this fire hose of money that is flowing towards the electronics industry, and particularly the builders of small electronics that are starting to cluster in Silicon Valley. And also that that government culture, that NASA culture at the time, was really became in large part the early culture of Silicon Valley. I think at one point you talk about white guys and white shirts with crew cuts. That was the original yeah. culture in the Valley, and, and some of that stuck. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, there were, this was the, you know, not quite greatest generation, but silent generation. You know, these are, these are squares. These are guys who are not, 
um, you know, they're, they're creatures of the establishment. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what's so interesting about that is that you have this valley that grows up in this very, um, you know, very much part of the military industrial complex, uh, very much dependent on, you know, the biggest employer in the valley up until the 80s is Lockheed Missiles in Space, which is down in Sunnyvale. Um, they locate in the valley in the mid-50s, and they are really, you know, part of what sparks this kind of clustering of electronics industry, um, that the presence of Lockheed, as I write about in the book, and also the presence of Stanford University. I want to talk about Stanford because it really is kind of the third leg of the stool, the engineering, entrepreneurial side, the government side, mm-hmm. and the academic side, which Stanford played such a critical role in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Stanford is, is fascinating. It's not, you know, it's the institution, what the institution, how it was set up at the very beginnings by Leland and Jane Stanford. Um, in 1890, they create their own university in the, in the, in honor of their, of their son who had died as a teenager. And, and in the founding grant of Stanford, it says, you know, you shall put something useful into the world. It was a very kind of pragmatic university from the very start. And there was a great deal of flexibility um, that the, the people who were the leaders of Stanford in the middle part of the 20th century, notably Fred Terman, who was um, a first dean of engineering and then provost of Stanford, really completely remade the university's curriculum in the 1950s to meet the needs of the Cold War and this new emergent government research complex. They built up physics. They built up big labs that were um, contracted by the government to develop advanced technology. And this is this is really, you know, critical. Stanford kind of becomes the perfect receptacle and the perfect generator of not just technology, but of human capital. Um, of, of people. So think about what, you know, what comes out of Stanford that's the most consequential on the valley, in the Valley. It's not just, it's not technology, although there's plenty of tech transfer, things developed in labs that goes out and commercialized. It's people. It's graduates of Stanford like Hewlett and Packard and Bryn and Page and everyone in between who go off and start companies nearby. That's the magic. And, of course, Stanford realized at a certain point that, wait a minute, we need to have a piece of this, and that changed the dynamic as well. Yeah, it was, you know, there was a very deliberate choice. Um, Terman is, uh, Fred Terman is is in, it really starts, you know, my story starts in World War II, and Fred Terman during World War II is, is in Boston. He's brought east by his graduate advisor, a guy named Vannevar Bush, who um, was running President Roosevelt's whole research operation during World War II, sort of it was the Manhattan Project and more. And a ton of, you know, really important advances in, in, in many areas of technology and particularly digital computing come out of this big effort. And Terman is part of this, and he realizes, okay, the game has changed. Like now the federal government is going to be a really important research patron, and Stanford needs to get on this rocket ship. And here's what we do to to do this. So, you know, this is a story of immense opportunity washing over California, post-war California. Your listeners know, you know, California transformed as a state. It grew. Population, the population grew by millions. The economy grew in these post-war years. But it's all of this opportunity kind of coming to California and then people like Fred Terman who are seizing that opportunity and creating something really distinctive. What was the turning point 
in terms of entrepreneurialism becoming such a key part of the Valley, in many ways it seems like when, when those eight guys left Fairchild Semiconductor, that was really a turning point. What, what do you see as the fulcrum that, that really changed the focus from government to entrepreneurialism? Yeah, well, it, it, this is a story of politics. And this, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book was weave in Silicon Valley's story to this broader narrative of American history and American social change. And really a turning point is the late 60s and the early 70s, the, Viet, the era of the Vietnam War and the era of Watergate, a time when a new generation, a baby boom generation that ironically enough is, is they're some of the chief beneficiaries of this huge push to spend on science in elementary school. They're winning science fair ribbons in college. They're majoring in sciences and engineering. They're, they're encountering computers for the first time in university labs um, that are funded by the government in some way. <laughs> and, uh, and they, but they are, you know, these are these students in, at Berkeley and Stanford in the late sixties, and they are looking at the technological world that has been largely created by the government and by big business. That's where the computers were those days. They were these giant mainframes that were in, that were sitting in the, you know, back rooms of corporate offices and in government agencies. And they said, "We this is this we cannot have all of this 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 incredible machine has would have such potential if it were in the hands of the individual. We need to take computing and we need to use the computer as a tool for the social change we want to see in the world." So the ideals of the 1960s kind of get translated by this techno tribe that I describe in the book. And some of those people are very well known figures, people like Stuart Brand, the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog. Um, but other people are, are less well known, men and women who were part of this personal computing movement and kind of the politics of individualizing the computer and making the computer personal and, and a tool of empowerment and communication. And they, of course, are the, are the people who, who, who not just build, don't just build a movement, but they actually build an industry by the end of the 70s, the microcomputing or personal computing industry. And talk about the nexus between that kind of 60s attitude, which drove the Valley for so long, exactly what you're talking about, and the role that venture capital played and, and how venture capitalists either saw it differently or saw the potential in what was being done and the story that went along with it. Yeah. So the the venture capital is this is a way that we see this connective tissue between the first generation of the guys with crew cuts and white shirts and the next generation of the long-haired, you know, space war playing, beanbag sitting, home brewing uh personal computer generation because the the venture capital community that's growing in the in the 70s in the valley is made up of of men who previously were many of them were in the semiconductor industry they kind of made their fortunes there and got their management expertise there and they turned that over to um, create firms like Kleiner Perkins, for example, which is founded, um, co-founded by uh, a, a veteran of Hewlett Packard and a veteran, a founder of Fairchild Semiconductor, um, uh, and, and who previously was with Shockley Semiconductor, the original <laughs> semiconductor company in the 1950s. So, and, and, and Kleiner Perkins, you know, which continues to be, you know, that's sort of one of the, go the, the marquee firms of the Valley, it goes on not only to, to, to play a big role in um, the early 80s, you know, 
PC era Valley, but also, you know, funding, you know, early funding of Sun Microsystems, Netscape, Google, and on and on and on. So there is this, you know, venture capitalists are providing money, but they're providing mentorship. And we see this again and again. We see it today with the um, folks who made made it big at Google or Facebook who now have become investors, angel investors, venture capitalists. They're they're the ones who are seeding the next generation and quite frankly picking the winners of who you know who gets to who gets a chance to um to to try and succeed and become the next Google or the next something. Do you have a sense that um, particularly among the younger people in the valley today that there is a sense of this history, this through line that you write about in the code, or is it just a kind of collective amnesia that really is about the moment? Um, I think that there's, I think I get a sense from the people that I've talked to and a broader sense of just having observed the Valley today is, is, is that there's, uh, I think people wish they understood more about the history, which is another reason I wrote the book. I, again and again, people don't quite understand. And you know, look, the Valley is very busy building the future. Um, there are, you know, people, there's sort of this attitude, well, the history is not, you know, nice to know, but, you know, put a plaque on it and move on. <laughs> like, you know, who, this isn't, this is not really relevant to what we're doing. But what I, what I, you know, the, the way, the, the reason I wrote this book was to show, you know, how the only way to understand the now and to build the future is to understand how we got to now, to understand the business culture, to understand the multiple technological generations, to understand, you know, what it takes to build a successful and durable company, and also to understand, you know, where are the Valley's great strengths and where are its blind spots? And how do we remedy, you know, the things that people both inside and outside the Valley have been talking about a lot over the last few years, like, you know, bringing more diverse voices into the room, you know, designing and, and implementing these high-tech project products, um, uh, thinking about the broader, you know, impacts and unintended consequences of their technology, um, you know, the, those, those, and also thinking about what's the next great thing going to be, you know, always you have technologists who are like, okay, we did this. It's kind of, you know, we, the hockey stick growth period might be over. What's the next big thing? And that's what, you know, looking backward actually can help us figure out what the future might look like. The other thing that's quite striking, and this comes back to, to much that you write about with respect to the role that government played early on in seeding the valley is what we see taking place in China today and what we sometimes even object to. And in fact, it is not dissimilar from the role that the U.S. government played in creating the valley in the first place. Yeah, I mean, China has, has studied the valley closely and is doing a lot of the things that the U.S. government was doing in the first quarter century after World War II. It's making big investments in higher education. It's making big investments in social infrastructure. It's making big investments in advanced technologies like AI and autonomous vehicles and more. Um, and this is something, you know, that, that, that people are concerned about and, and, and that for, you know, fairly they should. Um, but again, I think this, you know, recognizing the really important role of 
how government playing the long game and investing in blue sky technologies and investing in things that may not immediately have commercial payoff, because look, private industry can't be expected to shoulder that. <laughs> That's, you know, very few companies have the resources or the motivation. Um, you know, they're accountable to shareholders. They're accountable to, you know, they're thinking about qu- quarterly earnings. The idea of developing something that, you know, we don't really know where there's this, this might go. You know, that's the role that the public sector can play. But I think here's a really important difference that the history shows us when we look at China versus the United States. You can invest, the government in the U.S. invested heavily in all of these things in the past and continues to do so today, but maybe not at the same moonshot scale it used to. But it, the way that it spent the money, and this is something that I trace in the book, the way that it spent the money was often indirectly through private defense contractors or contractors through through, edu- through universities like Stanford and um, and my home university, the public university, University of Washington, um, that, that that indirect nature of spending was really critical. The government spent and then it got out of the way. And it also has allowed the free movement of people and capital it, that has been very critical to allowing the entrepreneurial sandbox of American tech to grow the way it has. It's opened its doors to people, the best and brightest from around the world. Um, you know, America, American tech sector has been so strong, not because Americans are better at technology than everybody else, but in part because of immigrants who've come from elsewhere, who have um, built companies at really high rates, you know, high, the rates of entrepreneurial startups, um, the, the percentage of, of immigrants, for, you know, foreign born or their children in leading and starting these companies, including many billion dollar companies is pretty startling. And so that has been a, a critical part of the Valley's magic. And it's part of what American uh, public policy over the course of the 20th century made possible. And you mentioned, in fact, that the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 65 was really a major mm-hmm. boom to the Valley. Yeah, it was a major boom. I, you know, I've I kind of, it's a character in my book, essentially, (laughs) you know, it's it's this instigator. And the really cool thing, actually, about that story is that Lyndon Johnson's sitting on Liberty Island in October 1965, signing this bill into law. This is an Immigration Reform Act that is really the first major reform for 40 years. Um, And what it does, its main purpose was to roll back these nation-based quotas on immigration that had been established in the 20s for, quite frankly, pretty, you know, racist and nativist purposes. And there was a lot of sort of very high anti-immigrant sentiment in the 1920s that, that really wanted to stop immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe at the time, um, you know, Catholics, Jews. And, uh, and that was in place until the 60s. And so Johnson is signing this as kind of a civil rights act of sorts, right? This is after the Civil Rights Act has been passed. And he says and when he's signing it, this is not a revolutionary bill. This is just a kind of rectifying an injustice. And we're, we're doing right by, you know, America should not be discriminating against people on basis of national origin, essentially. Uh, and it turns out it, it was a revolutionary act um, and in ways that that Johnson and the other supporters of the bill perhaps didn't anticipate because it opened up these huge new streams of immigration from around the world that had, you know, I think it's one of the most important pieces of economic policy in the last 50 years because of the economic impact that these new immigrants have had on economic growth, particularly in the tech sector. 
Has Silicon Valley become, in, in, in the simple phrase, kind of fat and lazy? Has it lost, you know, Andy Grove's idea that only the paranoid survive? Has it, has it peaked? Uh, you know, the, 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 the people have tried to write the obituary on the valley a number of times, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting. It, sometimes it often happens on years that end with nine, in 69 <laughs> after the, the defense pullback of, you know, the sort of Vietnam era cutbacks on defense spending or research spending the, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of wondering about, oh, is it all over? And 1979 there, you know, the economy was still kind of struggling and, you know, the next year Apple goes public and the boom on wall street for the computer main on Wall Street begins. 89, kind of the end of the PC boom, the kind of question of our, what's Silicon Valley's next act, and then, whoop, here comes the web. Uh, and so here we are in 2019, and we're wondering some of the same things. And, you know, the, the, the really cool thing about the tech world is that there's always something new. There's always something cooking. Um, we may not see it yet. Um, there's going to, you know, not every, the, the dominant companies of one era are not necessarily the dominant companies of the next, although the ones today are pretty darn dominant. Um, uh, but, you know, things will always, there'll always be something new. Will it happen in Silicon Valley? Um, you know, perhaps, perhaps not. You know, will there be, um, I've, you know, talked to younger technologists who are like, I want to live somewhere cheaper or, I can live wherever I want and do my startup or I want to, you know, think about how I can build tech for people in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, think about different markets. I want to think about different purposes for the technical knowledge I have. Um, you know, so it, it, I think there's a new, there's a new sort of consciousness among younger technologists of the limitations of the Silicon Valley model as it stands and that there's more than just, you know, you can't just build an app for that. You need to do more. Uh, so I'm really excited and curious to see what happens next. Margaret O'Mara, her book is The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Margaret, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Jeff. Thank you so much. Thank you.